Welcome to Earth Matters here on Gila Mimbris Community Radio, KURU 89.1 FM, Silver City, and on Las Cruces Community Radio, KTAL LP 101.5 FM, Las Cruces. This is Allison Civic, Executive Director of Gila Resources Information Project, a nonprofit advocacy organization that promotes community health by protecting our environment and natural resources. In 2020, the World Wildlife Fund reported that monitor populations of mammals, birds, fish, reptiles, and amphibians around the world had declined 68% between 1970 and 2016. And in another study released last year, researchers estimate that species are going extinct at a rate 1,000 to 10,000 times higher than the natural extinction rate. Scientists warn that we are facing collapse of entire ecosystems, threatening the planet's ability to support life as we know it. We are in a race against time to protect species and their habitats, and winning this race is critical to human survival and the amazing biological diversity found on Earth. Here with me to talk about the latest on species protection efforts here in our biologically rich Gila bioregion is Michael Robinson, Senior Conservation Advocate with the Center for Biological Diversity. Michael focuses on the protection and recovery of top predators like Mexican gray wolves and jaguars. Michael is also the author of a well-reviewed book on the history of wolves in the United States called Predatory Bureaucracy, The Extermination of Wolves and the Transformation of the West. And it was published by University Press of Colorado back in 2005. So good morning, Michael. Hi, Allison. Yeah, thanks for joining us today. We've got a lot to talk about, so I'm going to jump right in here. And, uh, you know, Michael, in the past several weeks, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service finalized rules to designate critical habitat for the yellow-billed cuckoo and the northern Mexican garter snake. These are two species that occur along the Gila River in New Mexico. And before we talk about the details of these two rulemakings, remind us how the Endangered Species Act works and what is critical habitat? The Endangered Species Act was passed way back in 1973, and it's a uh, a detailed and and thoughtfully constructed law. It's been amended since then. Uh, The essence of it is that an animal or a plant can be added to the endangered list, which means uh, that they're close to extinction, uh, or to the threatened list, uh, which is uh, uh, less close to extinction. Those are, those are not the technical terms. I'm just uh, putting, putting it out there in terms of what it means. Uh, and on the basis of five different factors, including habitat loss, the absence of regulatory protections, direct take, disease or predation, or other, other factors that are affecting its decline. And it has to be put on a list Uh, on the basis solely of the best scientific information available. And once it's on the endangered list or the threatened list, then the various provisions of the Endangered Species Act can be applied to ensure that that the animal or plant species doesn't go extinct um, and that it, uh, indirectly at least, that it can contribute to the ecosystem on which it of which it's a part. And that's written into the opening lines, the, the purpose of the Endangered Species Act, uh, the very first statement of purpose is to conserve the ecosystems on which endangered species and threatened species depend. I think that's a uh, near verbatim rendition of, of what it says. But in, in any event, there isn't any 
specific prescription in the regulations for how to conserve ecosystems. So the program of the Endangered Species Act is built around the conservation of species uh, with an acknowledgement they're part of their ecosystems. Critical habitat are areas that are designated specifically for a species recovery. Uh, and, and unlike the listing of species uh, of animals and plants, critical habitat designation does not have to be based solely on the best available scientific information. It's supposed to be based on that, but also can be uh, can take into account uh, economic and other social considerations. What, what it means in practice is that the federal government is not allowed to take any action that either destroys or harms the critical habitat. The, the phrase in the Endangered Species Act is adversely modified. Uh, and there has to be a review process for a federal action that might harm or destroy critical habitat for the species in question. Uh, okay. and, and that, yeah, so that's the essence of it. Yeah, so critical habitat, obviously very important for preventing species from going extinct because obviously they need habitat. So, and 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 in theory, we're protecting the 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 best habitat for these species. And and in in April, the Fish and Wildlife Service designated close to three hundred thousand acres in Arizona, California, Colorado, Idaho, New Mexico, Texas, and Utah as critical habit, habitat for the Western yellow-billed cuckoo. And I'm wondering, Michael, what are some of the threats to the cuckoo, cuckoo and how will critical habitat help recover the species? The yellow-billed cuckoo in uh, the Western population of the yellow-billed cuckoo is highly dependent on riparian areas, the streamside areas that are uh, rich with vegetation. And because of the vegetation, the, both the, the trees and, and everything else that, that grows out there, uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of animals that take advantage of it, including invertebrates, uh, everything from uh, grasshoppers and cicadas uh, and and the like uh, to uh, small vertebrates such as frogs. The yellow-billed cuckoo has an amazing life story or a life history, if you will, um, and that is that it uh, migrates from South America over a thousand miles to the Southwest and previously, well, still to some extent to other areas in the Western United States. And it looks for, uh, it, it seeks out areas alongside streams where there's uh, an abundance of its, its pre, uh, prey animals, typically the large invertebrate animals and often ones that are found in, in trees. And it, uh, it builds a nest. It uh, essentially is a stalk and ambush or largely an ambush predator of these, uh, of these large invertebrates. Uh, and small vertebrate species, it it sits quietly in the foliage and um, and pounces when it has a chance. And it's affected by loss of riparian areas because, first of all, of course, the you know when you have large cottonwoods that used to be habitat for migratory birds like the yellow-billed cuckoo, and when they you know when when groundwater gets depleted and and eventually the trees die and the flowing water gets less and less from from a variety of human impacts that we've seen all over the West, uh, that habitat disappears and, you know, there's less, less bugs, less, less tree canopy, everything else that the, the yellow-billed cuckoo needs. Uh, and then when it, it grows its chicks, the, the chicks have to hatch, of course, and have to grow very quickly because uh, in their first few months of life, uh, in uh, sometime around September of the year, they have to fly to South America with their parents over a thousand miles back. So they need the the yellow-billed cuckoos need these areas which uh, have this efflorescence of uh, of of small animal life 
so that they can get their chicks ready to uh, to make this arduous flight back to South America. That is unbelievable. And I love the story, um, uh, Mike Fugali and Carol Fugali, who used to work for the Nature Conservancy years ago, did bird banding. And this same pair of yellow-billed cuckoo, cuckoos came back to the same tree and nested um, in two consecutive years after migrating as you say, a thousand miles down to Central or South America. And, and it's just pretty amazing that they came back to the same spot. Um, that is amazing. Yeah. There's, there's so much about animal life that we still don't understand. Absolutely. And, you know, the bird was listed, the cuckoo was listed as threatened in 2014. But Michael, it's taken all these years to get the critical habitat designated. And I understand from my research that the Center for Biological Diversity played a big role in getting the Fish and Wildlife Service to finally finalize critical habitat. And unfortunately, it's significantly less than what was originally proposed. Maybe you can tell us briefly what what happened over all these years during this long battle. Yeah, and it goes way back before 2014. In 1998, we submitted a scientific petition documenting the the decline and the the imperilment of the Western population of the yellow-billed cuckoo, um, which is different in in striking morphological and behavioral ways from uh, the cuckoos on the other side of, um, of the continent to the east, by the way. In any event, uh, we provide, provided all this science, and then the Fish and Wildlife Service went through literally a, a decade and a half of delaying tactics of essentially, we can't do it for this reason, we can't make the analysis for that reason. They just There was always a rationale, and some of it may have been legitimate in terms of the Fish and Wildlife Service is perennially underfunded for these critical life and death decisions for imperiled species, but some of it really was the fact that special interests um, really don't want to, you know, have have an animal that is so dependent on our precious stream sides and the, and the water that is coveted and is is exploited and increasingly so by a variety of industries. They didn't they didn't want to see it get endangered species protection and, and Fish and Wildlife Service has just been uh, too influenced by special interests. So not, eventually, in 2014, as a result of Center for Biological Diversity repeated litigation. The yellow-billed cuckoo was put on the endangered species list. 546,335 acres were proposed to be designated as critical habitat. And that was throughout the Western United States to protect the remaining stream sites that are still used by yellow-billed cuckoos. And you don't know any given year whether the cuckoos will go to this stream or the one 50 miles away, depending on, again, how how much, uh, you know, if there's there's a lot of... uh, of crickets one year, that may be the, the year that they're going to show up so, uh, some other place. But but these are places that repeatedly have been used by, by cuckoos, as in the, the case uh, that you mentioned of these animals re- returning to the, ver- to the very same tree. Uh, and But they didn't finalize it. Uh, so that 546,000 acres was not actually protected. And then in 2020, the Fish and Wildlife Service came out with a reduced recommendation of 493,665 acres. Uh, and that then got finalized just recently at 298,845 acres. I know it's it's hard for listeners to make sense of all these numbers, but the bottom line is it went down something on the order of uh, of 40 percent uh, from what. And I, that's I didn't do the calculation before getting on on the air with you, Allison. But um, just glancing at the numbers, it went down a lot. And I'm afraid that politics really has had an influence, and that 
holdovers from the Trump administration and, and perhaps just uh, reflectively anti-conservation um, elements of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service may have played a role in really reducing the protections to a bare minimum that I, that I fear may not be adequate. Yes, that's right. I mean, habitat loss is really a major factor in the decline of these species. And so we should be maximizing the amount of critical habitat that we're designating. So Michael, um, we need to take a break and we'll be right back and talk more about species protection in the Gila with the Center for Biological Diversity's Michael Robinson. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Earth Matters here on KURU 89.1 FM Silver City and KTEL LP 101.5 FM Las Cruces. This is Allison Civic, Director of the Gila Resources Information Project. My guest today is Michael Robinson, Senior Conservation Advocate with the Center for Biological Diversity. And we're talking about species conservation efforts here in the Gila bioregion. And Michael, we just talked about the Western Yellow-billed Cuckoo critical habitat designation and the Northern Mexican garter snake just also uh, had critical habitat, habitat designated for it. And, you know, it's, it's, I understand it's taken 20 years to get this critical habitat designation for the Northern Mexican garter snake, probably, um, you know, more political shenanigans, as you talked about for um, the cuckoo. The interesting thing, and I just wanted to remind our listeners that, um, the northern Mexican garter snake was the species that was thought to have been extirpated from the Gila River since it hadn't been seen uh, since the 1990s. But in, in 2013, the Albuquerque Biopark found three or four uh, northern Mexican garter snakes along the Gila in Riverside on Nature Conservancy property. And that property just happened to be recovering from years of overgrazing. And I presumably the habitat was prime for the northern Mexican garter snake. So, um, Michael, tell us more about the snake threats to its survival and, you know, what this critical habitat designation means for the snake. The northern Mexican garter snake, just like the yellow-billed cuckoo, is very dependent on riparian areas, the stream sides. And in, in particular, uh, this snake directly needs flowing water because a large portion of its life is spent in the water. Uh, it's closely associated with, with uh, flowing water in, in the southwest uh, and Mexico. <clears throat> and um, it needs all the, all the elements that make uh, watercourses such a so beautiful and alluring for our own species as well. The shady, shady trees, the firm, firm banks, um, all the kind of things that can be degraded by long-term um, abuse of waterways um, through, through the many, many human endeavors that, that impact waterways as well. Um, Northern Mexican garter snake, of course, can also be terrestrial, uh, and it does spend a certain amount of time within you know, a few dozen feet of, of the water and not all the time immersed in the water. And it can make these long distance treks across, you know, dry country to get from one stream side area to another, which is kind of amazing in its, in its own right. But if you will, it's bread and butter. It's, it's um, culture and custom and culture is to uh, hang out in, in streams and prey on uh, native fish, small native fish, amphibians uh, and, and other small animals that uh, that are found in in the water, uh, and of course it is it is uh, highly imperiled because you know as we've alluded to already, our streams are disappearing. Everything from groundwater uh, depletion 
dams, uh, diversions, livestock grazing, which really alters the the morphology and the uh, and and, and uh, sullies and and fouls the waterways as well. All of these things uh, can severely affect uh, the northern Mexican garter snake and have and. Um, that's why critical habitat is so important because once again, it uh, at least prevents the federal government from taking actions that would uh, that would further degrade uh, the remaining habitat there is. Yeah, and remind remind me, uh, Michael, how much um, critical habitat habitat was um, designated? It was twenty thousand three hundred and twenty six acres along streams, uh, and again. This is like, uh, very similar, as you alluded to earlier, to the, the story with the yellow-billed cuckoo, in that it was a long fight. And it also represents a, a decrease, a very significant decrease, just as with the cuckoo, in what the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service had proposed. Once again, I mean, the timelines are very similar. In 2014, uh, the northern Mexican garter snake uh, had proposed for it uh, by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service 421,423 acres. Uh, and then it, they did not finalize that. Uh, and then in, as a result of our litigation, just as with the, the cuckoo, in 2020, they came out with a new proposal. Uh, we didn't want just you know a, a draft to lie out there forever. So we wanted a, a timeline for them to finalize it. And then they decided to repropose uh, a draft. And then this new draft from last year, they only proposed 27,000 784 acres, a drastic reduction from the 421,000 acres proposed six years earlier. And then you know, here we are um, in 2021, and they reduced that further. They reduced it by over 7,000 acres to the final of 20,326. So as, as I had mentioned there, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service does have discretion to take in, into account non-scientific uh, factors in designating critical habitat. But my concern is these are, you know, looking sort of broadly at the um, the snake and and the bird. These are highly imperiled animals that really can't afford much more loss of their habitats. And there's so many more imperiled southwestern species that depend on riparian areas. And this gets back to the ecosystem conservation purpose of the Endangered Species Act. Uh, not all of the species that are really trending toward extinction are currently protected under the Endangered Species Act. And, and we've got to take a broader look and conserve as much habitat as we can, um, because in the long run, of course, these are places that uh, that we need, not just for short-term extraction, but, but for a sustainable society and I think for a sustainable human spirit as well. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll we'll talk about that coming up here. But first, I want to switch gears here and talk about the jaguar. Um, there's been a new paper published earlier this month in Conservation Science and Practice. Um, and scientists and conservation groups, including the center, are advocating for reintroduction of the jaguar. And Michael, you are one of the authors of the paper. So can you talk about the case for reintroduction? Yes, jaguars were native to North America, including to the Southwest, including to the Gila, for many thousands, maybe maybe even over a million years. They're, just to take the broad view of it, there's paleontological evidence that jaguars evolved in today's United States, the, the 48 contiguous states, um, a long, long time, hundreds of thousands, again, maybe even over a million years before they expanded their range southward to Central America and, and, and eventually South America. We think of them today as synonymous with the tropical rainforests, a, a jungle animal, um, but it's worth keeping that in mind. And they disappeared 
because of uh, because of human persecution and habitat loss. There were uh, na- there are have been found Native American artifacts that seem to depict jaguars. For example, as far afield as Missouri, uh, a bone carving um, with with what appears to be engraved a spotted cat, large spotted cat from the proportions. Uh, there are uh, Native American oral histories that seem to describe uh, large spotted cats with jaguar type uh, behavior. Uh, and there's uh, th- there's n- known kills of jaguars from from both Native Americans and from the first European explorers uh, and and eventually American settlers uh, throughout the United States. Of course, we're not going to return jaguars to Missouri or to you know uh, Kentucky, where where two were recorded as killed in 1820, or to California, where the last one was killed in 1860. Although perhaps there are places in California that could support jaguars, but what we have close to home here in in the Gila National Forest and extending northwestward along the Mogollon Plateau um, for for over 100 miles is a region that still has extensive public land that has a lot of prey that that could support jaguars and very importantly could be connected to some degree with the, the declining and imperiled jaguar population in northern Sonora. And if there could be connectivity, i.e. jaguars from the north, for example, you know, putting one paw in front of another and successfully crossing and finding other jaguars in in Mexico or vice versa, that could sustain a jaguar population that maybe could be reintroduced up here and also could help sustain a jaguar population that's lost a lot of genetic diversity south of the border. Uh, This is an endangered species. So there's an argument for conserving the jaguar, the northernmost population, and actually for recovering it in part in a small portion of its original range here in the United States. Um, and there's an argument for uh, for its important role in the ecosystem because o- over this vast period of time, all the other animals, you know, had to uh, had to coexist with jaguars, and that's part of their evolutionary uh, trajectory was was shaped in part by jaguars. Other animals too, of course. Yes, absolutely. And you talked about connectivity and. Michael, the the border wall is hindering movement of the jaguar as well as other species. And people might have seen some of the videos, I think, that the center put up on the Hanos bison population that is, you know, kind of cut off from the the bison population on the is on the north side of the the border wall and trying to can't reconnect to the southern side. So tell us more about the implications of the the ecological implications of the border wall in the context of the of the jaguar and maybe other species too. Well it is it is one of the great tragedies of our era uh, is this uh, the impermeable sections of the border wall that have uh, uh, have were extended to a large degree, you know, over 100 miles. I couldn't tell you the exact uh, mileage. Some of my colleagues uh, could under the last disgraced administration, um, as well as there were some, some sections uh, in, built under previous administrations, and all of them that did not receive proper legal scrutiny because of an, an, a very unfortunate exemption in the laws that was granted uh, for in the, the so-called so-called Real ID Act uh, that that allows uh, construction of of the wall and other militarization of the border uh, without without fully considering the environmental or the social effects. So so it really is a tragedy in my view, uh, and it uh, as you as you point out with this uh, this rare wild binational bison herd 
that now has a wall across the area where uh, reportedly it was uh, the bison were crossing on an almost daily basis. Sometimes it's just, uh, you know, this is this is a species that, of course, ranged over many tens of thousands or maybe even hundreds of thousands of square miles, you know, uh, 200 years ago. And of course, now we have the Yellowstone herd um, and, and you know, quite a few captive herds, but we have a free ranging herd of bison in the boot heel that um, that is now, I think, probably more imperiled through the wall and, and other animals uh, as well, including the jaguar. I think that said, the wall does not extend across the entire border. There has been uh, areas that have been cut off, and those are uh, those are tra- tragic for the construction of the wall in those places, um, and not just for the connectivity. In places in Arizona, uh, groundwater has been depleted. Precious uh, millennia or millions of years uh, accumulating groundwater depleted to mix the concrete for construction of the base of the wall. Uh, and, and so we're going to see over the years and decades to come how that will affect native fish in, in springs and ponds and, and other aquatic life. But again, um, not to focus entirely on the terrible aspects of it, there are still areas where wild animals can cross, uh, including jaguars. There is uh, a jaguar known to be living in the United States. He's actually been there since uh, 2016. So this jaguar uh, has been living in the uh, Chiricahua Mountains and adjacent mountains in southeastern Arizona uh, for uh I think long enough to get in-state tuition uh, in at WNMU, but I'm not sure about that. Um, but but is clearly a um, an animal that's been residing in the United States for a while. There are other jaguars that have been reported uh, south of the border, but not very far south of the border. Um, and I, you know, I don't really know whether I, you know. There's presumably at some point some of these wandering jaguars are going to hit the wall if they haven't already, and the possibility for connectivity or for to contribute to recolonization of U.S. habitats through natural, you know, through through natural behavior may have, you know, is getting stymied or may get stymied. Uh, but other jaguars will will be lucky enough. I think it's lucky enough, considering we have some great habitat here in the United States, uh, to be able to, you know, hit a, hit a section of the border where there isn't a wall. Um, but it clearly makes it reduces connectivity. It uh, doesn't eliminate it. I do, I do want to point out, Allison, uh, that I just learned. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service actually just reported yesterday that a Mexican gray wolf in January from the population that was reintroduced 10 years ago in Mexico and and where they're still releasing wolves, a a male pup traveled north of the border uh, through the Sierra San Luis in in New Mexico's boot heel and uh, continued up into the Animas Mountains and then across northwestward. and, and skirted the edge of the Palencio Mountains, in which is, as many listeners know, right on the border of New Mexico and Arizona, continued westward toward the northern part of the Chiricahua Mountains. And here's where this epic journey, instead of being a celebration, turns, at least from, from my perspective and those of us who care about these endangered animals, turns very sad. Um, just east of Wilcox, the wolf tried to cross I-10 and was killed on the, on the interstate. Um, but it does show... You know, life's a crapshoot for wild animals in the modern era. It does show that the border can still be permeable to an animal that's fortunate as to where it crosses. It also, of course, points to to so much more work we could be doing to make our, our interstates and other roadways less lethal to wildlife. Um, but that's a long project that has been undertaken in some places, and we could think about it in the Southwest as well. 
Yes, absolutely. And I do believe that the New Mexico Department of Transportation has started to have those conversations. I know they held a meeting here last year on on wildlife safety on Highway 180. So they, they are doing some of that. But Michael, uh, let's take a break and then we'll return for the second half of our show and we'll continue our conversation about the status of species protection efforts here in the Gila with conservation advocate, Michael Robinson. Don't go away. Welcome back to the second half of Earth Matters here on KURU 89.1 FM and KTAL LP 101.5 FM Las Cruces. This is Allison Civic, Executive Director of Gila Resources Information Project. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Michael Robinson, Senior Conservation Advocate with the Center for Biological Diversity, and we've been discussing discussing species protection efforts here in the Gila region. Michael, let's shift gears and talk about the Mexican gray wolf reintroduction efforts um, and, and recovery efforts I know a lot's been going on, and maybe you can give folks a bit of an update as to where things stand. Sure, Allison. As I think almost everybody listening to the broadcast knows, Mexican wolves were reintroduced to the wild way back in 1998 uh, to the Apache National Forest in Arizona, and then, of course, uh, the adjoining Gila National Forest, which uh, which is right outside, outside almost everybody's back door. Uh, and... The population has uh, was buffeted by, in my view, poor management, politicized management on behalf of the livestock industry, which was the industry that the the U.S. government had originally exterminated wolves on um, on behalf of uh, a century ago. The livestock industry, have, you know, had had not been delighted to have wolves reintroduced onto the public lands that that are also grazed by by cattle and and has objected a lot. And the uh, Fish and Wildlife Service has responded by removing a lot of wolves from the wild and being very hesitant and infrequent in releasing them from captivity to the wild. So that's all old news, I think, to most of your listeners. Currently, there's 186 wolves in the wild in Arizona and New Mexico. I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think a little bit over 100 in New Mexico and the remainder in Arizona. And people who are interested can certainly go to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service website and, and get those, those stats. Uh, the, the genetics of the population are worrisome, even as the numbers of wolves have, um, have been increasing, which is really heartening after, after some of the declines we saw a decade ago due to, you know, due to mismanagement. Um, it's heartening the numbers are getting uh, better. It, it means there's less vulnerability that these wolves could be wiped out, you know, or a significant number of them by one forest fire or, or a disease or, um, or, or anything else. But the genetics are not getting better. And the genetics are important because all of the Mexican wolves in the world stem from just seven animals, seven survivors of the original U.S. government extermination program, which was extended as a foreign aid program project to, to Mexico. We sent them poison. We sent them experienced poisoners to show them how to poison wolves in Mexico. And by the time the Endangered Species Act was signed into law by President Nixon at the end of 1973, and the Mexican wolf placed on the endangered species list in 1976, uh, in the in the ensuing next five years between 1976 and 1980, uh, they only managed to capture five wolves from, from the wild. Three of those were successfully bred. Uh, and then uh, there were four other wolves that had been captured in previous decades and, and had been 
bred, uh, whose, whose descendants were interbred with the descendants of those last three. For so total seven founding animals and none confirmed alive in the wild after 1980. Those seven animals were, were bred in captivity, and that's the stock from which reintroduced Mexican wolves in the United States and in Mexico come from. The problem is that the genetic diversity of the wild population here in the Gila and in, in the adjoining areas in Arizona uh, has been reduced to as if there were only two founding animals instead of those seven founding animals. Is it, and it, it means, in essence, that another way to describe that is almost every Mexican wolf in the wild today, almost every one of those 186 animals, is as related to almost every other one of the animals as if they were full siblings in a normal population of any, any animal. It's as if they have the same two parents. An alarmingly high level of relatedness or as the scientists put it, mean kinship, mean in the sense of average kinship relatedness, uh, high inbreeding. And that inbreeding can have physiological effects in the short term and long term. The ones that have already been uh, uh, discovered in the Mexican wolf population is it reduces the fertility and the survival, uh, the survivability, the fertility of the wolves and the survivability of the pups. Um, and that's an imprecise way to way to put it. Uh, um, there's been there's a a critical study in 2007 that put it very precisely, but essentially smaller litter sizes uh, of pups from inbred, more inbred wolves, and fewer of those pups surviving to adulthood. Uh, and the problem is, so that there are ongoing wolf releases, but Fish and Wildlife Service insists on doing it in the least effective way possible in a manner that has, has led to apparent high mortality. And they are, because of political opposition by the livestock industry, they are not doing it in a manner that they know that they have data shows is more successful. And it's really tragic. Uh, and, and the uh, genetic diversity is not getting better. Yeah, that's really terrible. So what do you think is going to happen um, in the future going forward? Do you think there's going to be any under the Biden administration or is Fish and Wildlife Service going to get any better in terms of their, you know, how they're releasing the wolves and just, better with the overall reintroduction effort? Well, I certainly hope so. But again, we're facing a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that seems institutionally biased against the animals that that it's their statutory, and I might add their moral responsibilities to be taken care of and to be conserving. Uh, and and you, have, you have agencies that seem to regard, in this case, the livestock industry is uh, is more important than what Congress told them to focus on, which is protecting and conserving endangered species. So that's a big challenge for the Biden administration. And frankly, in reforming a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that seems to be badly off track. That said, as a result of litigation by the Center for Biological Diversity and our allies, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is in the process of rewriting its Mexican wolf management rules um, it's rules for when to remove wolves from the wild, how often and under what circumstances to release them from captivity to the wild, and a whole host of related issues, um, although those really, it comes down largely to, to those issues. Um, and uh, the previous rules were, well, they came out with rules first in, in 1998 when they reintroduced the wolves, and we petitioned for them to be changed as scientific evidence showed that, for example, confining wolves to relatively small areas would get in the way of recovery and allowing wolves to scavenge on livestock carcasses and and then uh, bring them close, which brings them close proximity to live domestic animals was, was poor management. As that kind of scientific evidence mounted, 
We filed a scientific petition to change the rules and then eventually a lawsuit in the Fish and Wildlife Service ignored that petition. And that led eventually in 2015 to new rules, which in some ways fixed some of the problems. Wolves have much more area they can roam. They're no longer confined to the Gila and Apache National Forests and adjoining Indian reservations where they're wanted. Now they can roam much further, which is really important. But there are still uh, arbitrary lines on the map confining them from other good habitat. There's a wolf right now north of Interstate 40, which crosses, uh, which, which means this wolf has crossed a line that the wolves are not allowed to cross. This is an animal that successfully crossed a busy interstate. interstate and uh, perhaps if others did as well, they could start inhabiting excellent habitat for them. But the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, under these 2015 rules, must remove this wolf from the wild. And a lot of other bad aspects of, of the 2015 rule as well. We got that struck down in court, and now the Fish and Wildlife Service is rewriting it. So there is hope, and we're hoping that the Biden administration will insist that the Fish and Wildlife Service pay more attention to science in regard to these critically endangered animals uh, than to the political interests that so far have dominated their fate. Yes, absolutely. And speaking of the Trump administration, I do just want to mention this because I know there might be some confusion, but the Trump administration took wolves off of the endangered species list and arguing that the wolf had recovered sufficiently. Now, this doesn't affect the Mexican gray wolf. And my question for you is, have wolves really recovered in the lower 48 states to warrant taking them off the endangered species list? No, they they haven't. Uh, gray wolves, which include... Um, Basically, all the other types of, uh, of, of gray wolves, aside from the Mexican gray wolf, they're listed, uh, they were listed as, as endangered for a long time. And they did make very significant progress toward recovery under the protection of the Endangered Species Act. For example, the reintroduction of gray wolves to Yellowstone National Park and to central Idaho, which took place in 1995, three years before the reintroduction here, uh, and the growth of the, the uh, population in the Great Lakes states in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan uh, has been really heartening and, and the growth of a, of a relatively new population in the Pacific Northwest. But despite all that, gray wolves occupy just about 10%, if not less, of the historic range they did occupy. And now under the Trump administration, they're off the endangered species list. The Center for Biological Diversity and our allies are in court to reverse that, but it's a long process. And in the meantime, we're seeing really terrible persecution of wolves by multiple states uh, that really make the, the point um, in, in alarming, uh, uh, alarmingly, uh, but very clearly to the American public that, that the states are just way too influenced by anti anti-predator uh, sentiment, special interests, the livestock industry primarily, and they can't be trusted to, uh, to ensure that these animals don't uh, go extinct again. Uh, so we're taking a number of measures, including we're asking that um, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service cut off funding to states such as Idaho and Montana that have just enacted draconian laws that are intended in the case of, of Idaho, they're intended to kill off over 90 or approximately 90 percent, 90 percent of the state's wolves. And, and we don't think that the state should be receiving federal funding for wildlife management when it's uh, clearly mismanaging an important, a critically important animal for its, you know, for its ecosystem and, and an animal that the American public uh, rightfully deserves will be treated better than that after after so many years of, of dedicated recovery efforts. 
So um, the short answer, Allison, is no, wolves are not recovered yet. We think a court will reverse that. And we've also uh, worked, worked with scientists who are, who are very alarmed as well. 115 scientists recently sent a letter to Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland, uh, asking that the Department of the Interior and the Fish and Wildlife Service rescind the rules uh, and, and uh, basically go back to where the wolves would have the protections of the Endangered Species Act because there's so many legal and scientific problems with the previous disgraced administration's rulemaking that took the wolves off the endangered species list. Wow. Okay. Well, it's very depressing news to me. Um, well, Michael, we'll be right back after this short break and we'll continue our conversation with conservationist Michael Robinson. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Earth Matters here on KURU 89.1 FM Silver City and KTEL LP 101.5 FM Las Cruces. This is Allison Civic, Executive Director of Gila Resources Information Talk Project. I'm talking today with Michael Robinson, Senior Conservation Advocate with the Center for Biological Diversity, and we've been discussing species protection efforts in the Gila region. And uh, Michael, according to the New York Times, uh, the Trump administration weakened more than 100 environmental laws over its four years in office, including the Endangered Species Act, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, and many others that affect ecosystems and the species they support. It talked to us a little bit about the impacts of these rollbacks. And it, it seems to me that there's a lot for the Biden administration to do to get back to where we were. Maybe you can kind of give us a sense of what there is to do here from a big picture perspective. Well, you're right. There, there is a lot of harm that was done uh, that needs to be uh, that that needs to be healed. I mean, obviously, our natural world at large really needs a lot of healing. Uh, but the Trump administration um, was very aggressive in catering to special interests and in, in, um, trying to undermine the bedrock environmental laws that uh, so many of us count on without necessarily giving them much thought. You know, you, you take a lot of breaths during the day, but how often do you think, oh, I'm so glad the Clean Air Act uh, was put in place and, and, you know, and I get to smell the ponderosa pines on a summer afternoon rather than, you know, some belching smog or whatever. In any event, of course, the laws are passed by Congress. And an administration can't literally rewrite the law, but how a law gets implemented, uh, it depends on regulations that the executive branch, the presidency, gets a chance to, to write. And that's where the harm was done, whether it was with the Migratory Bird Treaty Act um, that for a century, for over a century has protected, as the name suggests, birds that migrate to between different countries. It's uh, The law was passed in order to to put some teeth into a, an international treaty that the United States was was a part of, the Trump administration changed the the uh, the way that's interpreted, so that uh, birds could be killed uh, inadvertently, supposedly through pollution uh, or you know any any kind of habitat destruction, whereas before that that would not have been allowed. Uh, so just exempted a huge amount of of the um, you know the bird killing that can take place from any kind of regulation uh, and and really put a green light to, to killing birds, even in an era when you know birds of all types, but particularly migratory birds that are so vulnerable in so many different places, uh, you know, bird, bird populations and bird species are declining. So that's just one example. And the Endangered Species Act, uh, which is really all that stands between so many animals and plants and, and extinction being, being gone forever. Uh, and uh, the, the, the uh, Trump administration went through a, a massive 
rewrite of the regulations governing endangered species, every aspect of uh, the Endangered Species Act. And I'll just give you a couple of just of, of quick samples. I mentioned earlier in the program that there's two lists. There's the endangered species list and the threatened species list. And threatened species are those that are not quite on the brink of extinction, but are but are trending toward becoming endangered and thereby being imperiled directly and, and much quicker with extinction. There uh, has long been an interpretation of the law uh, that provided the protections for endangered species to threatened species uh, unless, unless regulators decided when they added a species to the threatened species list that, that really this aspect of it was not as important, of, of say a, a protective regulation is not as important so we can, we can allow some take, some, some killing or harming uh, or, or injuring. Uh, that's what take means in a broad sense under the Endangered Species Act. So there was some latitude to provide less protections for threatened species, um, but the assumption was they would get the same protection as endangered species. The Trump administration turned that on its head and basically suggests, well, the regulations now say, uh, that unless there's specific protections provided for, from take for threatened species, they don't get them. So the, you know, the, the de facto is no protections unless you specify them. And what that means in practice is that as species that are trending toward extinction, toward being listed eventually as endangered and then being really on the brink if nothing is done, as they're put on the endangered, on the threatened species list, that the, the specific protections that are applied to them would, would essentially be a, a negotiations process. And guess, guess what? The, the industries that have always been so successful at manipulating politics and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, they're going to have the upper hands in that, in that negotiation. They're going to say, well, do we really need to protect this this animal from this particular harm, yeah, they'll do fine if if not. And you know, it, it could well be uh, death by by a thousand cuts. So that's one aspect of the regulations that's changed. It's very alarming. Another aspect is in designation of critical habitat, which I um, we briefly discussed earlier. Is is areas that are necessary for the recovery of endangered species uh, and. Uh, on which federal agencies are not allowed to, to harm or to destroy that critical habitat. Well, the under the the uh, new regulations that the Trump administration uh, promulgated, uh, critical habitat areas are are delimited further than the the law allows. They're, they're going to be smaller uh, generally following these regulations because all, there's all these additional constraints that aren't suggested in the Endangered Species Act on where and under what circumstances critical habitat uh, can be can be designated. Um, and, and that may reflect what we discussed earlier as well with the yellow-billed cuckoo, the western population of the yellow-billed cuckoo, and the northern Mexican garter snake, these, these two riparian-dependent species, they got you know, much, much less habitat uh, designated for them recently than was proposed a few years ago. I, I think that may well have been a contributing factor as an interpretation of those those new regulations. So there's a lot of mischief that can be done by lawyers uh, that were were essentially imported from private exploitative industries into into the Trump administration's Department of the Interior, and they knew exactly how to tinker with the regulations to frankly harm the animals and plants that so desperately need protection on behalf of their previous clients. It's really sickening, and we're in court to reverse those. But again, the Biden administration can, can take action also but they're, you know, they don't even have a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service director yet. Um, it's still very early, and I don't know that they've had a chance to look at it closely. Wow. Okay. Well, this will be uh, sounds like a big area for a lot of um, advocacy and community um, pressure on the Biden administration. 
Michael, you know, there's there's been much discussion about moving from single species protection programs versus conservation of landscape scale ecosystems. You've sort of sort of made reference to this. And I'm I'm just wondering, can you describe kind of this tension? You know, is one or the other more effective in conservation of biological diversity, or is it really a combination of both approaches? Well, I'm not sure I have a, a great answer for that, but I do think, you know, one has to look at the broad picture, but one can't you know, with with a lot of different species and their needs and the way the eco the dynamics of the ecosystem, whether it's predation or floods, fire regimes, there's a lot. You know, ecosystems are always in flux, and and the animals and plants in them, of course, have their their individual you know life histories and destinies and lives. Uh, so we have to look at how that all combines together, but we can't lose sight of the specific and sometimes idiosyncratic in particular needs of individual species, the little the, the habitat niche or the 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 surprising, you know, eco- other ecological needs that they may have, whether it's for, for um, movement uh, or for certain conditions. I mean, there's a million examples of that. So um, I think what I guess I worry about is when you have agencies, land management agencies, such as the Forest Service, that traditionally over the last two or three decades have come up with these certain, these grand sounding ecosystem management plans that sort of that that state that they're looking at the big picture, but sometimes they're not looking close enough at the individual needs of species. And that's where the that's part part of the importance of the Endangered Species Act is it doesn't it doesn't take a generalized look. It looks at well what are the life, you know, the, the life histories of you know such and such species. How is it being impaired? What is what are the threats to to the persistence of this animal type or this plant type? Um, and then devises a very specific science-based approach in a recovery plan for ameliorating those those threats, including, of course, critical habitat, which is vital. And and as as I indicated, that critical habitat can support other species as well. But but I, anyway, for whatever that's worth, that's my take on it. Yeah, I think that that makes sense to me. Um, and um, I so you know recognizing that. Uh, saving nature and stabilizing the climate will require protecting at least 30% of the planet's land and water by 2030. President Biden announced in January his administration's support for the so-called 30 by 30 initiative. And just last week, he released his America the Beautiful initiative that will support locally led and voluntary conservation and restoration efforts across public private and tribal lands and waters in order to create jobs, strengthen the economy's foundation, and tackle the climate and nature crises, and and also address inequitable access to the outdoors. And can you respond to the administration's commitment to to species conservation in the context of these announcements? I think it's tremendously heartening. Um, It's it's. Uh, in in some ways, a vi- you know, it's obviously a visionary proposal. You know, we have yet to see how it will play out on the ground. And I admit I have not read the details of the America the Beautiful plan. I, I love what I've heard of it so far. You know, I think I think we we do have to be cautious about the history of industries that really have have had the short sighted view, kind of appropriating public programs for for the interest and for conservation, uh, and taking them in directions that really. Uh, were not intended and, and, and are not constructive in the long run. And just to go back in, into history, you mentioned it at the beginning you, uh, in introducing me my uh, my book, Predatory Bureaucracy, The Extermination of Wolves and the Transformation of the West. Um, I, 
I did some research into the New Deal from 90 years ago, the 1930s, and all this this uh, tremendous conservation programs that were brought about by Franklin D. Roosevelt's own love of nature and caring about natural landscapes um, and things, things such as the Civilian Conservation Corps, which, which sent hundreds of thousands of young, idealistic men to do conservation projects. Um, but there was some harm done in them as well. Some of these people were, um, in, in my book, I note that they were uh, they were taken over into projects to poison rodents, naturally occurring rodents such as prairie dogs and and, and other animals, uh, jackrabbits, of course, are not rodents, but also animals that were seen as harmful, but are, were important parts of the ecosystem uh, instead of doing, you know, things that, that really were conservation. And this was on behalf of the livestock industry. So I just, you know, just a historical perspective is um, this is a wonderful vision. Uh, and we, we as citizens, as well as, you know, conservation groups like the Center for Biological Diversity and our allies and community groups, we all just have to keep a close look at it. Uh, but so far, I'm just tremendously heartened by the Biden administration, uh, you know, essentially their appointments as yet, because that's very, that's the essence of what we've seen is um, conservationists, visionary conservationists, such as Deb Holland, who's now our Secretary of the Interior, um, you know, and it gives me, it gives me, and and, and the, the beginning of efforts to grapple with global warming in a, in a serious way, uh, give me hope. And there's going to be a lot of battles. We're not always going to see eye to eye with the Biden administration, uh, but I think they're starting off on, on a, a hopeful uh, first step. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think there's, you know, globally, um, I think a report just came out last week um, that we are, we have protected 17% of uh, the Earth's uh, ecosystems. So we have a long way to go in less than 10 years. And of course, you know, a lot of this research is coming out of uh, E.O. Wilson's work, his half Earth um, initiative to save half of the Earth's terrestrial and marine ecosystems by 2050. So the 30 by 30 initiative is kind of an interim deadline. And and really, we for climate change purposes, as well as species extinction, this is, scientists are telling us this is imperative that we do. And, and so I agree with you, the devil's in the details, Michael, and we're going to need to pay close attention to the to how this um, initiative gets um, gets implemented. So, Michael, just uh, some closing words um, on on what we've talked about today. Just we in the remaining few seconds that we have left in the show. Anything well, it's great like to, to be say? able to. Yeah, it, it's uh, great to be able to talk with you, Allison, and to um, talk with my neighbors near and far here in southwestern New Mexico, and whoever may be listening in online as well. Um, we, we are so blessed to live in a beautiful part of the world where we still do have expansive open space and, uh, you know, forests, grasslands, and the, the opportunity to run into amazing animals, especially in our riparian areas and our canyons. And it's, these are precious areas um, that in some cases are really under terrible pressures and threats. Uh, and, and we've got to preserve these places and we've got to uh, preserve the wild animals that live in them. Um, and and that, will make, uh, that will make for a happier, healthier uh, society, human society as well, I'm convinced. Yes, absolutely. So Michael Robinson, thank you so much for talking with me today. And I just want to say thank you for your many, many years of dedicated work um, protecting the Mexican gray wolf, the jaguar, and all the other species that um, that um, you've been protecting. We really appreciate it. And um, yeah, just we're indebted to you for for sticking with it for all these years. So thank you. 
Well, thank you, Allison. And, and likewise, um, the protection of the Gila River uh, is, is huge. And you have played such a substantial, uh, huge role in, uh, in making sure this precious ribbon of life uh, will be here for many years to come, for many centuries to come. Well, thank you. And I hope it is here uh, for many, many centuries to come. So with that, um, that's all we have today. And we'll have links to more information and a podcast of today's show and past programs available on the Earth Matters page at gmcr.org. Thank you to our audio engineers, Marcus Hansen and Michael Allen. We hope you'll join us for next week's edition of Earth Matters here on Gila Members Community Radio, 89.1 FM, Silver City, and KTAL LP, 101.5 FM, Las Cruces.